This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, my name is Michael Johnston, and this is another episode of New Books in Sociology, a channel on the New Books Network. Today, I have Michael Serrazio with me. He's an associate professor in the Department of Communication at Boston College. Welcome to the show today. Thanks very much for having me, Michael. I appreciate the invitation. Excellent. Today, we are talking about your new book, Authenticity, Authenticity Industries, Keeping It Real in Media, Culture, and Politics, published in 2023 by Stanford University Press. So to start off with, how did you become interested in this topic of authenticity inter- industries? And what got you to write this book? Yeah. Um, so it's funny. The obsession with authenticity that um, I'd felt creeping more and more into American culture over the years was popping up in the discourse in all sorts of interesting places. Um, I noticed that um, various popular social media platforms were being described as authentic, right? When people talked about, well, why has TikTok gotten big? Well, it it feels very authentic. When people would talk about why certain politicians were successful, Donald Trump in particular, um, people would often sort of reference his authenticity. Um, uh, The rise of the influencer industry, uh, you know, one thing that's heralded from a lot of um, semi-professionals who work in that space is that they're authentic. And so I, I kind of noticed this term and the underlying value that it um, represents showing up more and more as an explanatory device for various phenomena that we're seeing in American culture and media and politics. And I just wanted to kind of set off and see what I could map in terms of um, in terms of its prevalence and also how it's constructed. Um, I think from the very get-go of the book, um, I'm, I'm trying to show how many of the things that we talk about as being authentic um, are actually produced for us and they're constructed to seem that way. So um, the nature of the research for the book largely entailed um, pursuing conversations, in-depth interviews with a variety of um, what I call authenticity industries professionals who work backstage in advertising, in entertainment, in politics, um, to try to understand how they go about their work to convince us of the authenticity of the people and products and platforms that they work on behalf of. So that's kind of the genesis for the project and also kind of its methodological execution. So when you say authentic, what does it mean for someone or something to be authentic? You gave a variety of different definitions. Uh, However, I think that as you progressed throughout the different definitions, you came to uh, maybe one solid one that you used for this book. Is that right? Yeah. 
Authenticity is a very dynamic, um, fluid concept, but um, I think if we had to reduce it um, down to its simplest form, um, authenticity represents human behavior that is interdirected in some way, as opposed to necessarily being influenced by um, external factors or external um, pressures or considerations. And what those pressures and considerations often take shape as, as I kind of argue and thread throughout the book, are more or less sort of three things that are inauthentic, right? I think in many ways throughout the book, I have a harder time defining perhaps what authenticity is as much as it is easier to speak of what's inauthentic. And so the three kind of main um, threads throughout the book of inauthenticity are what I call marketplace motives. So anything that's done because of the pressures of capitalism, because of the pressures to do something for money. Um, that's one form of in inauthenticity. A second form of inauthenticity um, comes to us from um, the kind of tradition of Irving Goffman's um, sort of uh, dramaturgical sort of thought, whereby um, um, you're inauthentic if you are not true to, um, to the self that you are when you're not around other people, right? So that you're not being pressured to be phony or to be uh, decorous. Um, you're, you're who you really are backstage. That's the second form of authenticity. That's a social form of authenticity. And then the third form of authenticity more or less kind of refers to how, um, for, for lack of a better example, um, if you have a, a cute little indie coffee shop in your life, in your neighborhood somewhere, and you say, that's a really authentic place. What do we mean by that? Well, by that, we're usually saying that it's not standardized. It's not mass produced. It's not um, uh, homogenous. It's not ubiquitous, right? That's the third form of, of authenticity. It's something that's, that's, that's unique as a product or a form in an otherwise um, somewhat, um, like I say, formulaic landscape. So those are the kind of three, three ways that I try to define authenticity throughout the book is that authenticity resists those external pressures and it comes from a place that's much kind of more inner in meaning, and, I, and I'll just elaborate slightly here on this, which is that um, I try to make the argument throughout the book that authenticity is kind of the moral, the moral framework for our time. It's a kind of quasi-religion of self-discovery. Um, it's a way of expressing some sense of truth in the world as it relates to other people, as it relates to um, the pressures of the marketplace, and as it relates to um, a kind of industrial landscape that standardizes our surroundings. And it's something that, that is highly desirable in a 21st century environment when uh, when there is so much maybe that feels fake or inauthentic. So we just desire it extremely. And it's what a perfect time to, to write this book and to, to have it published. Thank you. So, and television is one area that you looked at. How do producers for reality television try to assure that the cast is, is authentic for its viewers? Yeah. Reality TV is the kind of starting point. I mean, I go through the book and as we'll talk through, there's, there's several different contexts and kind of, um, um, spaces of media and culture to talk through case studies, but but I start with reality TV um, for a few reasons. One, it's a genre that's pretty much going on 30 years now. I mean, if you if you want to use, as a lot of people do, MTV's The Real World as the starting point. That starts roughly about 30 years ago, and um, and it certainly has defined a lot of our um, a lot of our media, certainly our televised culture in that time. And 
reality TV has always been based upon the pursuit of authenticity as the thing that it's trying to get out of its subjects. And it's the thing that supposedly compels audiences um, that somehow we're seeing, as it says right there in the name, reality, that um, that we're seeing what people act like when they're in the famous words of MTV's or the real world. Uh, how people uh, what happens when people stop being polite and they start getting real and so in in this kind of thinking about reality tv what reality tv is particularly situated against is that notion of fakiness is that notion that you're putting on a performance on a particular stage for a particular set of um people in your life but rather you're really seeing in a kind of um in a kind of true real way who people are uh, as the cameras roll and so reality TV as an industry tries to pursue that. Their reality TV is especially formatted to try to elicit self-disclosure. That's the kind of ideal authenticity that comes out of reality TV, that you're, um, that you're seeing people who are unscripted, unfiltered, uninhibited, and um, there's no kind of skeletons that are stashed in a closet somewhere. You're seeing who these people really are. And that's, as I wound up doing interviews um, with uh, casting directors for reality TV, showrunners um, for a variety of shows, everything from The Real Housewives to Jersey Shore to Queer Eye. Um, I was hearing over and over again that really authenticity was something that they pursued, that they wanted to get out of their performers. Ideally, they're not even performers, right? They're just being themselves. Um, and they had a number of techniques to do it, but all of the techniques, generally speaking, had the um, ambition to... Um, make invisible the media that recorded these people's lives, right? So the goal was to try to um, to try to capture something through the media that didn't feel like the media captured at all, right? And so, um, you know, filming 24 hours a day, seven days a week is one way that you can get at it. People sort of forget about the cameras at some point. They just become um, they just become wallpaper uh, in some ways. Um, and the hope, again, is that you're getting people's true reactions and not something that they're just trying to be phony and fake and polite about. Um, and and they uh, one of the famous tropes in reality TV is the confessional monologue. This is something that the you know real world pioneered a number of other shows use as well. And that's really where it's supposed to be intimate. You're supposed to be getting emotion directly. Um, and that's really the goal in in a lot of this casting. And also another another sort of factor of reality TV is they want, people at home to look at a show and to think that this resembles them or they, they that audiences sitting at home staring at the screen see themselves reflected in some way and that creates a sense of authentic um um, um it's compelling authentically and therefore it gets people to tune in yeah these reality casters you you define them as being emotional experts well, what does this mean how are they how are the experts in this area yeah um great question so um uh, to to get at that question, let me just pause on the and, and linger for a second on on um, the importance of emotion. Um, in this sort of line of thinking, um, thinking is inauthentic. Um, being rational is inauthentic. Emotion is authentic. And so, a lot of times when you're attempting to elicit or capture authenticity from someone who's on screen, what you're really trying to do is um, you're trying to get some sort of um, emotional range out of them because the theory here, and it sort of comes to us from, to be honest, it goes all the way back to, to uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau and, and sort of the philosophical thinking that, that he offers, um, is, that, um, is that emotion is uh, the kind of most 
direct angle to what people feel and 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 it's the most direct angle to um, who people are and that um, 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 rationality and thinking uh, uh, are, 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 are inauthentic, they ca it calculates, right? Authenticity is not calculating, authenticity is natural. So um, reality casters are emotional experts, right? They're, what they need to do is they need to produce a particular emotional performance from the people who are on the screen that doesn't come off as fake. And um, they do this by, um, I mean, there's a, a variety of techniques that I kind of go through in the book that they try to use to do this. Um, but uh, at the core of all of them is this notion that um, you need people to turn off, uh, people, you need um, cast members to like turn off that little um, voice in in everybody's mind that says, oh, I should bite my tongue. Oh, I shouldn't say this. Oh, I should keep those emotions in. You got to, from the perspective of the reality TV industry, um, you have to you have to basically get people to kind of turn off that that um, internal governor, as some people put it, as some of the um, folks that I interviewed put it, and um, and so that's really the kind of goal and the kind of reality TV front is to be able to elicit those emotions. Yeah, I think those and emotions. Uh, I think maybe the reason that such expertise is needed is because these emotions have value tying back to what you were talking about earlier uh, audience members wanting to to see that emotion wanting to feel a part of it and somebody who seems emotionally dead might not be able to connect as easily yeah absolutely um and um you know the um just to give a shout out to i mean there's i should i should have i should have telegraphed this sooner there there's a um um there, there's a whole uh, library stack uh worth of books that this project builds upon and 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 um I, I should i should nod in particular um to the to the absolute kind of um trailblazing efforts of of two scholars in particular gunn and lee who wrote a book called mediate mediated authenticity and sarah benet weiser who wrote a book called authenticity um and uh this my own book is is simply a footnote following in their footsteps um but i should add on the question of kind of emotional leverage um uh, Laura Grindstaff, uh, um, who's a um, uh, who wrote a book called *The Money Shot*, and this was a this was a fascinating um, sort of ethnography of daytime um, talk shows, like kind of Jerry Springer type things. Yeah. And the term "the money shot" in um, in the context of those shows uh, refers to the moment at which um, these people on the stage of a Jerry Springer um, sudden are so overcome with emotion. That they can't help them, they can't help but let that out, and they can't help themselves, basically. Like, and that's that's the term that she uses in this book, in in the book that she wrote on this uh, terrific book that she wrote on the subject. And very much um, that money shot is also what um, that emotional money shot is what reality TV uh, producers are looking for, just as much as you know daytime talk show uh, producers were before. And they're natural, they're raw because these are authentic people who aren't scripted. They are even. Uh, they're they're even weeded out with the uh, with the casting process. It's it's interesting just to see how how well planned and how how staged without being staged it is. Like right, putting a bunch of people together who um, who may or may not be like one another, and and that isn't found out until well into the show, right? Yeah, indeed, indeed. So then the next area you, you go to in your book is about social media. And, and amateurism and social media. Uh, how how does amateurism play a role uh, in being viewed as authentic in social media? 
Yeah. Social media is just reality TV for everybody, right? When social media comes along two decades ago, it gives every single person the opportunity to turn their own life into a kind of a reality show, right? I mean, in, in many ways, the sort of classic late 90s film Truman Show was so far ahead of its time in, in predicting this. Um, so what does social media um, circulate? Overwhelmingly, social media circulates content that is made by amateurs. Like nowadays, um, we, we, um, we surround ourselves with, with far more content that has been produced by amateurs as opposed to professionals than would have been true in decades before social media came along. By and large, if you watched media content pre, you know, mid 2000s, if you were watching media content, you were watching it made by a professional. After that time, you're you're seeing a lot of content that's just made by your friends, that's just made by rando strangers. Um, and so what um, what that means is that the um, it means that we hold up because of that, the amateur as the kind of um, ideal form of um, cultural production. Um, uh, we assume that if the content is made by an amateur, it's more trustworthy than it, if it's made by a professional media company or a professional um, you know, media professional, if you will. Um, the very first form of social media is blogging, and it, to some degree, establishes that myth, right, that um, that the citizen journalist or the um, you know um, um, uh, um, armchair opinion um, um, espouser uh, is giving us their true take on the world. Um, with each successive platform, um, a kind of amateur style takes hold. I think YouTube was extremely um, important in this. I one of my interviews in the book was with the um, head of culture and trends at YouTube, who uh, wrote a terrific book uh, called uh, Videocracy. Um, that really does sort of push forward this myth, and I don't say myth disparagingly. I think it's it's myth in the sense that it's functional and that it's productive. Really pushes forward this myth that um, the content that we encounter on social media and YouTube in particular um, is more authentic because it's made by people who are just doing it for love and not money. Right? That's the core of what an amateur is. It's someone who who does things for for love and not money. And that's been true with each successive platform that comes along, right? Each successive platform has built itself on, um, uh, has, has, has been successful to the degree that it could convince users that they can be their real selves on, on a given platform. So um, I think that, you know, um, we've seen this with, uh, with Instagram and this is, you know, when Instagram first starts out, it only tries to highlight amateur cell phone photos. It, it sort of tries to um, play down professional photography because, you know, 10, 13 years ago when Instagram was first taking off, if you jump on Instagram and you're just seeing a lot of professional like pictures being put up, you're like, well, this isn't for me. This is like for people who are good at this, right? But they want, but tech companies, whether it's Instagram or TikTok or Facebook or Snapchat or any of them, um, they, need to, they need to convince us to create content. And so in order to convince us to create content, they have to convince us that this is a space for amateur content. Because again, most, you know, 99% of us who are putting content into social media are just amateurs. So that really becomes the ideal. That really becomes the ideal, um, especially aesthetically speaking, right? Like um, things that have a low production value quality to them are more trustworthy, uh, so more or less is what that myth tells us. Um, and so you start seeing... Um, 
you know, uh, this uh, executive at YouTube told me, you know, um, some of the most successful YouTube creators will leave their mistakes in uh, editing wise or cinematography wise, or they'll, they'll edit, they'll edit flubs in. Um, if you look at one of the most prominent YouTubers, uh, Emma Chamberlain, um, you know, um, who, who spends, I mean, to make amateur looking content, it takes an incredible amount of time. I mean, she's estimated, you know, in, in her peaks that she was spending hours and hours and hours per week putting this content up there, but it's very, it's very sloppy looking. I mean, I think like if you jump on TikTok, you're, you're getting a lot of sloppy, amateur, informal, low production value type content. And that convinces us that it's authentic, that it's done by people who are just doing it for love, not money. Similar to, you know, how people are going to be listening to this and, and, and hearing us talk to one another, right? The authenticity of us not scripting our conversation, but instead a natural response from you and, uh, and, and totally. me responding without it being contrived. Totally. Um, so uh, with that being said, does the virtual world lead to a garage myth that users tend to buy into and invest in? What, first off, I guess, what is this garage myth that you talk about? Yeah. So this is a, this is a, um, one of the, uh, um, one of the more kind of fragments of the idea in the book that I don't quite develop as much, but I just kind of toss it out there to see, um, you know, whether there's any value to it. But, um, I, I was struck by how in, um, in a lot of the corporate narratives around these tech companies that have grown to be, um, in many ways, the most valuable corporations in American history. Um, there is, it's very much built upon um, what I call the garage myth, which is that these companies were started by amateurs and dropouts who were just tinkering around for love rather than money, right? So um, the myth of, um, again, myth, it's not myth being untrue. It's myth in the sense of it's functional. It's culturally productive. The myth of Mark Zuckerberg and Bill Gates being college dropouts. The myth of um, Apple or uh, Amazon or Google starting in a garage somewhere, right? To some degree, um, every big company starts like that. Like I'm not, I'm not saying by any means that tech companies are the first um, to espouse this myth. All companies start, generally speaking, small and 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 then. If they hit it big, they grow big. But the more powerful that these companies have become, uh, the more lucrative that they become. The more that you know, the market cap on these companies reaches tens of hundreds of billions of dollars. The more they have to remind us that they just started in a garage somewhere, right? So, like, the more valuable Apple becomes, and the more powerful it is in our lives, in our society, and in our world the more it has to remind us that we, we started humble, we started small, we weren't, you know, I mean, it, it wasn't, we weren't doing this for money, right? And so that narrative and that kind of PR story has to be told and emphasized in order to um, perhaps um, inoculate our fears about just how much power these companies wield in our lives. So the, the garage myth um, offsets or serves as antidote to our anxieties about these companies power these tech companies power which which is enormous I, for some reason i started to think of hansen you know a garage band right that started totally. off really small and yeah and we're throwing up to to fame and prosperity uh and maybe it, it add just justification and 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 gives reason to maybe their deservingness to to the power and fame that they have today 
Well, and, yeah. and your and your point and your point about Hampson is 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 well taken because there is a chapter in the book that sort of focuses on how authenticity functions in pop music, and there is within the realm of pop music very much a thread and a kind of um, principle, uh, which is uh, an attention, which is uh, do music artists do what they do for an artistic ideal, uh, just jamming in the garage trying to trying to express themselves, or do they do it to sell records? Do they do it to make a fortune? And that tension around whether the song, the album, the artist is a truly artistic or whether it's just another product to be sold in the marketplace is is a tension that's persisted in pop music for decades and um, and uh, and and is very much representative of that kind of um, Hanson, you know, starting in the garage type uh, uh, band uh, uh, narrative and mythology. And I try to stay away from ors because, like, I'm the guy. I'm like, well, both and yeah, sure. and, totally, yeah, hundred percent. So, since we're on this topic of of pop music, um, do fans locate and validate their identity in popular music? So, these garage bands who are playing this music and uh, drawing in, uh, well, doing it for love or doing it from and or doing it for you know money eventually to become popular, right? Uh, or at least you know some of them do become popular. I think of Nashville and Las Vegas and all these other places that are music cities, and uh, and people go there to listen to them before they become famous, and then eventually pay uh, a huge price to to get into the shows that they um, that they later play that are a bit more, uh, um, uh, well, const- a bit more made, a bit more in- inauthentic than their original than their original performances. However, uh, listeners, what what's their the fans? What is their what is their listening um, embedded in? Is it this locating and validating their identity through popular music? Yeah, um, absolutely. I, I would say, um, you know, one of the things that music does is that it helps fans locate their identity. It helps it helps fans validate their identity. This is a I mean, this is a core kind of theme of authenticity in general throughout the book, which is that um, one of the things that you're trying to um, to sell to people is a reflection of themselves in a politician, in a product, in a platform, in a band or a pop artist. And music is especially um, true of this. So, so when we consume music, um, you know, we we it's true. You have, I mean, once upon a time, you paid for music. Of course, you still pay for music and going to concerts and stuff but um but 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 you want you want you want to have that experience feel like something more than just a marketplace exchange right you want you know to just take say the monumental um phenomenon of the summer the taylor swift tour right so that um and i do remember some some news coverage of this when the tour first kicked off, people were like just shocked at how expensive the tickets were, right? I, I mean, I mean, she was selling out, you know, arenas and, and stadia around the country, and tickets were, you know, starting at a thousand dollars to get in to see her, right? Um, that's the tension, right? That um, I I fully believe, and I mean, I like Taylor Swift well enough. I won't I won't call myself a Swifty by any means. I think she's got mm. some some great jams. But um, I fully believe that like her fans see themselves and see their identities reflected in her, right? Because I feel that way about some of the you know artists that I'm I'm super hyped on. Um, 
But then when you pay $1,000 to see her, it really challenges this question of authenticity, right? It really challenges the question of, well, is it, is it, is, 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 um, is this experience simply for making money or is it to make me feel some sense of identification? And to go back to what you said a second ago, of course, it's not binary, right? The answer is both, right? Um, but the challenge in the music business um, is to constantly um, convince people that it's not about the money. Um, hip hop is an exception to that, and we can talk about that in a second. But um, pr particularly in 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 rock and in in pop confines, um, you constantly want to um, try to make fans forget about the market exchange part of the process and to to make it feel like a kind of cultural truth or a kind of artistic expression. And that's um that's something that is always intention, particularly when you're dropping a thousand dollars to, you know, to see, uh, to see the era's tour. And maybe that's intentional then in terms of media, how Taylor Swift appears more than just in concert. Like we saw her a few games ago at the, uh, at the chiefs game, right yeah. up in the stands and, and, and show her, showing her down to earth as being, you know, that girlfriend or, uh, or that normal person who lives a life just like all of us do. Absolutely. Selling, that precisely what you described there, right? Selling Taylor Swift as this down to earth person that's just like any of us is precisely the authenticity cell, right? And it's the same cell that um, is used across context. So Joe Biden is just this down to earth person that likes ice cream like you do, right? Um, um, you know, um, this influencer that has a, a, you know, a million followers is just the same down to earth person just like you are, right? Because the ideal of authenticity is relatability and intimacy, you're constantly trying to convince people of that. And there's no universe in which Taylor Swift is like us. She occupies a different planet, a different stratosphere, right? Like it's not, um, you know, the 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 um that magazine, that Us Weekly magazine um, uh, feature format with the photos that say stars, they're just like us, is complete BS, right? Like it's, but it's selling us the notion that these people who are famous and powerful are like us in order to convince us of their authenticity and to make us like them and trust them more. And then, you know, the complete flip side of that, as you described earlier with what inauthenticity is, is, is locking the locking Taylor Swift in a, in a marketplace. So only allowing her to be seen uh, during a concert or not allowing us to see her backstage where she wouldn't be true to self. So instead showing her backstage and her front stage uh, across multiple uh, settings or scenes. Yep. And then, and then giving her this uniqueness, her an authenticity instead of making her just like any other female singer. Indeed. Indeed. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. So Beth Klein is one of the, uh, uh, one of the people you brought up when talking about musicians. Um, According to Beth Klein, how can musicians prevent themselves from being sellouts? I mean, being expensive and being famous, and uh, but but not being a sellout. Yeah. So Bethany Klein is is one of the sort of foremost scholars on um, of, of pop music, and and she wrote a book that was quite literally called Selling Out, um, that really looks at how um, really I mean how authenticity functions um, within pop music over the decades. Um, and and this notion of selling out is very much um, kind of selling out is the inversion of authenticity, right? Selling out is the opposite of authenticity. 
um, it's the case that, uh, you know, um, and throughout, throughout the history of music, throughout um, across genres, there has been, um, historically, there has been worry about selling out, the worry of the perception of selling out, going back to uh, Bob Dylan going electric at the 1967 uh, Newport Folk Festival, that somehow he was selling out his sort of folk music aesthetic tradition. Um, so selling out often refers to changing your style in some way to try to garner a larger audience and therefore more financial reward for your art, right? So that um, typically the narrative of pop music is that an artist's early albums are more authentic. And then the fear is that later on that they've gone pop, that they've gone popular, uh, that they've sold out whatever kind of artistic creative muse that they once courted. Um, as I say, Dylan faced this in the 90s. You know, various grunge bands and punk bands have faced this over time. Uh, rock is very much a space, rock music is very much a space in which selling out is problematic. Um, selling out also does show up in hip hop, which is, you know, I, I think it's safe to say the most important um, music art form of the past 40 years. Um, but it means something different there. Um, um, to not sell out in hip hop means another inversion sort of phrase, you keep it real. Um, you don't conform to external pressures in some way. But hip hop was also, I should, I should add this, hip hop was always comfortable with, um, if not selling out, selling product. Um, hip hop has always been comfortable with commercialism. Um, you can go back to uh, one of the earliest hits in the 1980s, uh, Run DMC did a track called My Adidas, uh, you know, 50 Cent's first album that blows up in the early 2000s is called Get Rich or Die Trying, right? There's a there's a, a mentality of hustle within hip hop that is inextricable from the fact that um, hip hop is an artistic expression that comes from um, a lack of privilege, uh, 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 you know, um, an artistic population that's experienced oppression, racial oppression, economic oppression, things like that. So hip hop has been always a little bit more comfortable with the hustle and making money off of um, making money off of the art. And um, I think in some ways hip hop saved music in that way, because uh, once in the early 2000s, um, the uh, distribution of music just completely blows up and the record industry goes from selling, you know, $20 billion a year to a fraction of that. Um, you had to figure out another way to make that money. And so sponsorship and licensing and basically taking this art form and um, weaving product placement into lyrics, hip hop was always going to be comfortable with that. And it pointed the way, I think, in many ways um, for that. So um, selling out is a tension um, and it's a boogeyman. It's a specter, but it's also um, something that would wind up being the solution. Because when you can no longer sell people an album, which more or less nobody's bought an album in 20 years, um, you have to still figure out how to how to make a living, and so that largely meant some form of commercialization, which which hip hop was comfortable with, and the rest of the industry became comfortable with as well. What's interesting about uh, um, hip hop, though, is is I, I think of Eminem, and I think of some of the controversial things that uh, Eminem has said, and even been take, taken to court. For him, I think maybe selling out would have been to change his tone and to. Uh, appease the media and appease uh, politicians. Absolutely, because precisely what you're describing there is one of those central ten tenets of authenticity that we began with, which is you're authentic if you are true to your inner self and that you're not bowing to outside pressure 
Um, in the case of Eminem, that pressure may have been political or you know trying to um, self-censor against controversy, what have you. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, that would be a case study. I mean, Eminem's own authenticity, his, I think, uh, and I admit, I know his first several albums pretty well. I don't know his later stuff as well, but uh, Eminem's authenticity was always about race, right? I mean, he was, and he's he's sort of likened himself to Elvis in that way, which is that, um, you know, he was largely um, co-opting a, a historically African-American uh, artistic expression and and he's always tried to find his footing largely what Eminem did was um he owned his whiteness and I don't think he ever tried to um um deny that but I think he was always trying to use coming from a socioeconomically marginalized background as the uh font of his authenticity as opposed to you know obviously being black which he was not as being the font of his authenticity so one of the things that stood out in our conversation is this moving target as term in terms of what is authenticity. It seems to be not something that is monolithic, something that stays the same from age to age. It seems to be this moving target. Um, is this true? Yeah, um, I, I think so. Um, authenticity is a moving target. It's restless. It's dynamic. Um, whatever is authentic today, um, tomorrow will look dated. It'll look, uh, whatever looks effortless today will look try hard tomorrow. Um, I think that, I think the principles of authenticity endure, but the specific phenomenon that they apply to uh, will change uh, from, from, from year to year and decade to decade. So um, I do think that, um, I do think that, again, going back to kind of those sort of three tenets of authenticity, this notion that it's not a two-faced self, it's not something that's done for money or marketplace reward, um, and it's not something that's sort of ubiquitous and and um, um, sort of uh, you know uh, industrially um, um, homogenous. Um, I do think that those principles will continue, but. Um, Things that start out authentic do not necessarily uh, stay that way. Um, uh, politicians that seem authentic at first do not necessarily seem authentic later on. Um, um, brands that seem authentic uh, don't always continue. I'll give you a concrete example of this. That's a little more recent. Um, last summer, uh, a, uh, a social media app slash platform called Be Real uh, exploded. Uh, in terms of popularity, I think it peaked around maybe 50 or 60 million downloads, uh, largely college students. Um, and more or less what Be Real was, in case listeners aren't familiar with it, is just an app that um, once a day you're supposed to show um, to your network of followers and friends precisely what you're up to without filtering it, without doing retakes, you know, taking a snapshot of, of, of where you're at, what you look like, and what you're looking at incredibly mundane, like, like, so just, 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 um, 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 mind-blowingly in, in, in mundane, um, but real, authentic, yeah. right? Not Instagram. I mean, Instagram at this point is largely a, a space for, for very highly performed, highly curated, you know, over-filtered lifestyles. It's our, it's our, it's, it's life's highlight reel. Um, Be Real was, was the opposite of that, exploded. It went up to 50 million downloads. College students were using it all the time. Um, I just gave a, a talk, a book talk today at a college where um, in the q and I asked students I, to raise their hand. I said, how many of you had, it's probably an audience of 100 or so students, I said, how many of you had Be Real and used it a lot last summer? Every hand in the room went up. I said, how many of you are still using it regularly? Five hands, shot up, right? Um, so um, 
like any kind of cultural form that cycles in and out of popularity, um, V-Real would be an example of how certain things become authentic and then they're no longer authentic anymore. But um, I think the principles of authenticity do sort of endure and we can we can use those to kind of like um, see what what becomes authentic and why, even though that might well cycle out later on. They're emotionally powerful and they're extremely, they, one would, they have a short life maybe to them because it can build so much fatigue and the people who are trying to do this realness, I, maybe there's some some of that tad to it as well. Yeah. The cycle of authenticity is a little bit like the cycle of cool, right? Things yeah. go in and out of fashion, right? Something, I don't know, let's just take like, let's take like, um, let's take like pant bagginess, right? So we're living, we're now, we're now at a moment in fashion um, where, um, where I think Generation Z uh, in particular um, I know this because I see this on college campuses, um, um, pants and jeans have gotten extremely baggy again in a way that we haven't seen since mm -hmm. the 1990s. Really, really the aughts and the 2010s. Um, millennials are, are sort of either responsible or emblematic of the kind of reign of sort of skinny jeans, skinny tight, you know, pants or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and now those pants, that pants style is looking dated because that's what fashion does. Fashion moves, fashion cycles. Authenticity does the same thing. Authenticity goes through cycles, much in the way that something that was cool a few years ago is no longer cool, but it'll be cool again someday, right? I mean, it's a cycle, so um, these things vacillate in and out of popularity and fashion and and authenticity as well. And uh, one of the authors that you brought up, who uh, focused on country, Richard Peterson, contributed to this idea about how country transformed over time. Uh, I'm a I'm really into festivals, really into urban sociology, and and uh, and then also looking at culture within society. So Richard Peterson is somebody who I'm also familiar with. Uh, what was what do you see as being his contribution in uh, in this idea of music transformation, particularly country music transformation? Yeah, Peterson is really one of the formative formative influences in thinking about produced authenticity in a music context. Um, he's someone who um, uh, really studied um, the history of country music, particularly through the lens of how is it that um, in the early 20th century to sort of mid 20th century, how is it that country stars were being produced to convince um, listeners and fans that they were somehow authentic, that they were somehow mm -hmm. down to earth and, and real. Um, and so he goes through a number of examples, everything from like changing people's names to changing where they allegedly came from, to you know, blackening out their teeth so it looks like they have fewer fewer teeth. Basically, he you know he he kind of catalogs and documents in his book all of these different ways that country music and what what looks authentic in country music with particular stars is a construction. It's a fabrication. It's been produced for us to to believe that these people are just down home you know, love to tailgate, love to camp and fish, right? And some do for sure, but mm -hmm. like um, it's also put on for us, right? So he's really key in this area. And the other, excuse me, the other scholar uh, of, of music and authenticity who's who's absolutely essential is um, a guy by the name of David Grazian. Mm -hmm. And he, he looks at this, um, his big kind of area and his big kind of contribution is blues clubs. He looks at it in the context of what does authenticity mean in blues in Chicago, 
Um, and he does some terrific deep ethnographic dives into how that plays out. Um, and so, and, and he's a, a really, um, he has done incredibly important work thinking through how authenticity um, looks in, in music culture and especially like blues music culture as well. I was just thinking of uh, of uh, also Jonathan Wynn and Music City American Festivals and placemaking in Austin and all these other um, places as well. And, and and that's interesting, right? It's it's a music scene, and what is authentic is genuine to the uh, time and place, and what should be played where may make it authentic or inauthentic. And you know, one of the things that I think of is these silent discos. I don't know if you're familiar with them, but it's interesting how yeah how you can look at the dance floor and people still seem to be dancing the same way, even though they might be listening to different music. I've always been fascinated. Have you? I assume I trust you. Like, what's it like? What's the vibe? Is it like cool? Is it crazy? Is it weird? All the above. Uh, I I think from my watching it, I, I I thought it was kind of awkward, but kind of very interesting. It's like it's like watching a train wreck, right? You just you can't peel your eyes away from it. But uh, uh, but I I think that actually being on the floor and participating in it, it would be a bit cooler than what it was when I was watching it. I'm sure. Yeah, it does. That's so you're right, right? Looking at it after the fact from the outside in on a YouTube clip is probably far more awkward seeming than perhaps what it actually felt like. I think I think on the silent disco thing, I mean there's a famous, I don't know, famous, famous in as it famous in the sense that it just lodged in memory, um, a clip of um uh, a bunch of fans uh in New York City on a subway platform after a concert got out from the uh um, the uh, dance pop artist Robin, who is, you know, she, she for, for at least in terms of my own music taste, can do no wrong. And these people were on the subway platform and they were all plugged in silent disco style, like dancing to it and like dancing together. And like, I don't know, it just it had that crazy cool vibe for sure. I thought you were going to say flash mob because that's another example of yeah. something that appears to be authentic, even though it was contrived prior to. But nobody in the audience knows that this was all previously planned through a text message and they all get on board and start dancing and People were like, wow, how did how did you do this in such short, you know, short time? Yeah. Yeah. Flash mobs, interestingly, I, I covered flash mobs a little bit in my first book. Um, flash mobs, it's not exactly clear who invented them, although Bill Wasik, who's a kind of New York City journalist editor type, um, may have come up with the idea for them. And there was a period in the early aughts where flash mobs had a real kind of authentic feel, and then brands started doing them. And then I think like people just felt like, oh, this is kind of like this is not authentic anymore. This is just kind of a lame sort of like weird interruption in my day in a mall or something like that, you know, mm. because again, flash mob would be the example of something that was once authentic, cutting edge, cool, edgy. And then it just becomes like a sort of dorky way to sell us a cell phone or something like that. I show them in class today and they're not today, but you know, um, in the past five years and it seems that they've almost been forgotten about and right. some students it's, it's like nine 11 Our students weren't, weren't alive or they weren't born then. Indeed. So, Indeed. Yeah. So now we're getting into the point of, uh, is it possible for authenticity? And there, one of the things that you wrote about in terms of authenticity is is the ability to be credible, this idea of street cred. Um, so first off, I guess, what is street cred? Yeah, I mean, street cred, um, you know, largely is a sort of like phrase or term that comes out of the hip hop scene. Um, and it is something that has been um, true and authentic um, relative to something that's more constructed or commercialized, right? And so, um, 
So um, um, particularly uh, brands and advertisers are always trying to pursue some type of credibility in some way. Um, they're always worried about being seen as inauthentic because they are, right? Fundamentally, the job of a corporation, a brand, an advertiser is to try to sell us something, right? They want they, 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 you know, they're motivated to make the cash register ring, um, and they're always faced with people worrying about the inauthenticity of that leveraging their behavior, and so they're always kind of pushing back on that. Um, and so brands and advertisers do very much face that that sort of challenge of how do they convince people of the credibility of their product um, because people know that ultimately McDonald's just needs us for our pocketbook, right? McDonald's is not, or any brand, you know, major kind of global corporate logo, what have you, like they're not, um, they're in it for the money, right? Um, in a way that like, just to contrast here, um, we don't look at like the mom and pop diner, right? The kind of one-off independent sort of restaurant hole in the wall off the beaten path. We don't look at that with the same cynical jaundiced expression of, um, you know, they're just doing it for the money, right? No, like they're doing it because they like love making the food and love whatever, right? But like nobody walks into McDonald's and thinks like, yeah, this is really authentic. Like they're truly, they're truly doing this to try to express uh, creativity with their, um, you know, cuisine, right? And so brands are always trying to, brands and advertisers and corporations are always trying to pursue that authenticity and that credibility um, against our assumptions um, that they're just doing it for the money. Because it's difficult. Like we moved from an industrialized society where mass production, where production was the major focus and music was being mass produced and uh, and and maybe that first came about with the with, with the idea of the concert, right? Where people were paying money to purchase it instead of going to uh, back backyard bars or festivals and and playing to an open audience, but instead playing in uh, in huge stadiums that have hundreds of thousands of people in it. Um, uh, to a a post industrial society where it's mass consumption, where uh, where it's not just a, a leisure class of people who are able to purchase it, but making it affordable for anyone to be a part of it. So that being said, does it make it difficult for authenticity to exist and maybe a third place where we're just a few homogenous people can come together and experience something that others aren't able to experience? It does. Um, there's an interesting quote that I came across from, um, just to stay with music for a second, um, with a member of the Insane Clown Posse, which is a sort of like rap rock group that, um, I mean, I'm not a fan of it per se, but anyway, um, there was an They're interesting from Iowa. quote. Are they really? Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, I mean, taste is taste, right? It's you yeah. know, no, no, no accounting for taste. Um, but there was an interesting quote, I believe it was from, I, I think they were featured in like a frontline interview or something like that. And, and, and the quote was more or less like, um, you know, when, when, and this, I'm speaking in the voice of this member of ICP, you know, when you hear one of our songs, um, you know, you feel like you're the only person that knows about it. But if you hear a song on the radio, it's like, that's not your song. That's everybody's song. Right. Like, so, um, um, there's a way in which, um, popularity and authenticity are inversely correlated, right? The more popular a particular artist uh, or song, in theory, the less authenticity they have. Now, we just talked earlier about Taylor Swift's, and I would I would suspect that a lot of her Swifty loyalists would surely consider her authentic. So does that disprove? Um, possibly. I mean, I 
do think Taylor Swift is an anomaly in a lot of ways. So maybe it doesn't disprove the general theory, but there is a way in which seeing a band in a dingy basement nightclub, what have you, right? Where there's just a few other people around vibing on it. You have some ownership over that band. You have some, not in the literal sense, but in a kind of metaphorical sense. There's a way in which you feel like you're in on some secret with some other fans that are also in on that same secret. I don't think anybody who went to SoFi Stadium in LA to see Taylor Swift with 80,000 other people felt like they were in on some secret, right? That like oh. she was, that, that, they, that they had some special ownership uh, because it, again, it goes back to this, this tension of scale that authenticity is predicated upon, right? Um, um, the, the more large scale something is, the less real it can feel to us. Um, and that's, again, that's based upon, I think, our feelings about industrialization in many ways. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that um, um, the, you know, the more, um, the more ubiquitous something is, whether it be, uh, you know, a Starbucks, you know, something where there's 50,000 stores, um, whether it's um, a concert that's being played for 50,000 people, um, in many ways, those are the types of things that have the hardest time seeming authentic uh, because authenticity is often small scale in nature. Oh, yeah. I think of like today's maybe in music, if we want to stay on that topic, uh, just uh, maybe a, a couple seconds longer. Uh, I think of playlists as being something authentic today. And then of yesteryear, when I was growing up, it was really cool to burn CDs, right? And and to put a variety of different songs on the CD. Well, that CD isn't selling thousands and uh, friends always wanted you to burn a CD for them because it almost seemed magical not knowing what the next song was going to be. Absolutely. It's a great example, right? Even before, even before CDs, we can talk about mixtapes, right? Um, yes. I do think that you're pointing out something important there, which is that as the tangibility of music disappeared uh, over the course of a few decades where music no longer became a physical thing, um, the way that it functioned in terms of its authenticity changed as well, right? Like um, to have had a particular obscure vinyl record, to uh, you know, to have burned some special mixtape uh, or you know, mix CD or whatever. Like music was tangible then, and by being tangible, it was much more scarce. When music goes into the kind of digital landscape. Um, there's no problem of scarcity, right? This, you know, a song drops on Spotify and it's suddenly everywhere, right? Um, and so I think that forces us to rethink how, what authenticity means within sort of music subcultures because, because before, again, sort of pre-digital, to know about some obscure punk band or some, you know, up and coming, you know, rap artist, you couldn't just jump onto Spotify and like look them up and then suddenly be up on them, right? You had to, first of all, discover them on your own, which is tricky, uh, acquire their music, which is also tricky, right? Um, Cause it's, it's scarce in nature, it's tangible, it's, it's, um, and so, yeah, so I think there is something about the kind of digital landscape that changes how we experience music in a kind of authentic fashion. Well, yeah, it almost is like fat, uh, prefabricated for you. You know what's going to be on the CD before you even put it in the, uh, and drop it in the CD player. You know what's going to be in your, uh, in on your channel that you select or CD that you select on Spotify, um, before you even start listening to it. So 
like the the dj is lost there the dj the listener has control over rather than the dj so a loss of yeah gaining of control in the audience as to what's going to be played like today you can even listen you can even go on the internet and find out what a set list is going to be before a concert that you go to totally and i find that very weird i i went to uh I went to a Springsteen show a couple weeks ago, or I guess now a couple months ago here in Boston, and, and I realized that you could find out like what the playlist would probably be based upon. And, you know, it's like, I don't know, like, I don't know, what happens to surprise? <laughs> what happens to uh, uh, serendipity? So um, I think this has got, gotten us to a point in this idea of strategic lab- labor for influencers, whether it be music, whether it be whatever it might be. Uh, is there some value in the strategic labor that is carried out by the um, uh, by these performers? Yeah, the influencer business is entirely fueled by authenticity, right? It's about it's worth you know estimates peg at around twenty billion dollars at this point. I would argue that the you know that entire twenty billion dollars of res- revenue is is built upon a foundation of authenticity, right? The value of the influencer is that they seem just like us, right? They seem relatable. They seem familiar. Um, they don't seem commercialized, right? Um, which anything that doesn't seem commercialized is the best place to try to put an ad, right? Like it's 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 the very absence of the appearance of 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 sales motives that makes it a very fertile space to convince us of um, of the authenticity there. So, I mean. Influencers, you know, what do influencers sell? They sell their authenticity, right? They yeah, they have managed, they've they've managed to create um, a following. That following believes that they are real, that they're you know authentic, that they're relatable, and that means that they have value to advertisers who can then put their product into their lives. Um, and so, but here's the paradox or the sort of contradiction, if you will. An influencer has value because they seem authentic to their followers. But the minute that the influencer starts doing deals and commercializing their feed, they lose that authenticity because authenticity and commercialization are inversely correlated here. So um, that's why influencers, that's why what you've seen, I mean, a big trend in the influencer space is a movement away from mega influencers and mid-tier influencers and to more smaller scale influencers, right? So if you have if you only have like five or 10,000 followers, you're more valuable as an influencer than if you have 50 or 100 because people trust you more. You might actually know your followers. They might not know you. Um, and so what the kind of influencer market and brands and corporations have done is they've realized like, well, we don't want to like, you know, spend a bunch of money to have Kim Kardashian hold up, you know, our soap or whatever because um, people don't trust her. They don't believe that, right? But like, oh, if we can find somebody who has like a thousand followers or five thousand followers is just popular in their social network, like those people still have credibility. Those people have authenticity. Those people are the ones that could be trusted to send the brand message. And so you've seen the shift toward what are called nano influencers or micro influencers. And that's that's been for the last couple of years the kind of forefront of this space that really values these people that are even more kind of regular, average, ordinary seeming. Um, that uh, uh, they can sell us better, right? Because like the more authentic you seem as an influencer on social media, the better you are to try to sell people on a product that a company wants you to be convinced of. Which can blur the separation between self and and brand, right? For that person's identity. I 
continue to be fascinated by how much we've accepted influencers as normal. The influencer space is really freaking weird. Like we, we, I think we as a society have just like kind of like, kind of just like accepted that. But like, it's really bizarre. And frankly, if you, uh, to be honest, to reference back to the Truman Show, if you go back and watch the Truman Show from the late '90s, like there's a few scenes in that that are more or less like proto-influencer scenes, where like uh, Jim Carrey's wife like holds up a product and like is like, oh, like you know, like you know, it, she does like an influencer move. It's played for laughs back in the late '90s, and like it looked absurd, and it, and yet we've 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 wound up in that dystopia. The notion, again, the notion that people would consider themselves brands, the notion that people would sell out their friends and sell out the space for sharing in community to shill for products is really weird. It's kind of sad. Actually, maybe it's really sad too. And it's also completely understandable, right? Because like once, once you have to hustle at any and all times because the market demands it, um, because you know work is becoming more precarious, because people have contract-based gigs, I don't blame influencers for doing this. Like they are just responding to market conditions, but it's really freaking weird. Like it's really bizarre to see someone you know that you're connected with as a friend on a social media in a social media space suddenly like pop a product into the feed. Like I just think we accept that without without recognizing what a bizarre new world we're in. And a world that's again funded to the tune of 20 billion dollars these days. The university where I work, they're currently trying to sell this uh, new, newly designed program of new media that's going to be uh, part, part uh, hands-on, part really um, like making, making, well, the video and audio and that stuff. And then another side that's going to be more entrepreneurial based called uh, something to the extent of people who want to become influencers. So showing them the entrepreneurial side of, of how they can become influencers and monetize their skill sets. And you see these surveys pop up from time to time where, you know, there'll be, you know, X percentage of Generation Z has as their career goal to become an influencer, right? Um, and, um, you know, that's, again, that's, that's, first of all, that's by and large not financially sustainable. Um uh, but that's fine. I mean, people, you know, young people forever have pegged their hopes on careers that are not necessarily practical. So I don't begrudge them that. Um, but um, an influencer is not, generally speaking, an influencer is not famous for anything other than just being themselves. Like they don't have, um, as one interviewee told me, like they're, they're people who are still trying to figure out what their talent is, even though they've already accrued an audience for it. And so I just think it's still kind of bonkers that we're in a world where influencers are so pervasive and and precisely what they do is a thing. Like it, we should yeah. we should definitely recognize that that craziness. Well, and to put it in a university because then it becomes inauthentic because it's an institutionalized product that students have to go through courses to become an influencer, which isn't the original design, which was more natural and more free flowing. Absolutely, absolutely. So all of this to say that being an influencer, being authentic, this whole process is, is exhausting. It has to be for the for for anyone who is trying to produce themselves as an authentic product. It's exhausting. It's nonstop. It's the type of job that never really has, you're never clocking off, right, as an influencer. Um, it is based upon um, um, 
highly capricious changes in the algorithm that cannot that certainly cannot be controlled nor can they be predicted a lot of times right so you're if you're an influencer your fate is tied to whatever tiktok or instagram or facebook or any of them decides to do with the special sauce that is the algorithm right like they could you know the algorithm determines how content circulates and at any time and we've seen this over the, a decade or two the powers that be can change the value of the algorithm. They can say, oh, no, we want more video content right now. Oh, we want more highly emotionalized content right now. Oh, we want to, you know, feature your kid or your puppy more now, right? So, like, the influencer is not ultimately in control of their fate in that regard because they're dependent upon the platform to circulate their content. And that puts the influencer in a pretty precarious, stressed-out place, right? You're having to produce a ton of content, right? Because the other thing about these social media platforms is that we're doing a we're doing a ton of unpaid labor, right? All of these platforms are worth billions of dollars based upon trillions of hours of labor that no one's ever getting paid for, right? They just need us to keep making content for them. And influencers do especially because that's their bread and butter. But it is exhausting. It is, um, you know, it is precarious. And it is based upon an ideology that's taken shape over the past two or three decades that you as a human being are a brand. Now that's fundamentally delusional. No human being is a brand. People have that delusion, but um, a brand is, is, is not a human being. Uh, but we've been, we've kind of drifted into this notion over, like I say, three decades or so of, you know, ideology from, from many different sources that this is normal and good and should be the ideal. And there's a lot of young people who want to be influencers who think of themselves as having a brand or being a brand. Um, but that's, that's mistaken. That's delusional. That's, um, you know, that's kind of um, neoliberal capitalism having, you know, wormed its way into our brains and then eaten them. Oh, extreme alienation, if you want to go with like a Marxist approach or from a Viberian approach. Like I, I call that like Richter 1.0 because he's talking about impersonalization and the iron cage and eventually how, you know, the marketplace itself might might override our own ability to be unique or to be, um, well, to be ourselves. Weber gave us the iron cage. What we live in nowadays is the silicone cage, right? That we are, we are um, to follow from kind of Ritzer's, uh, you know, McDonaldization thesis and, and notion. Um, we are conditioned to care deeply about our metrics, right? To try to optimize the quantity of our metrics as much as possible. Are we getting enough likes? Are we getting enough shares? Um, are we getting enough, um, you know, engagement? Um, so we are, you know, we take on those principles as the ideals for how we live our lives based upon how social media architecturally structures what it values. And then we kind of import those same things onto our, our kind of own hearts. This is extremely fascinating. And and I commend you. This had to be a lot of data for you to sift through. And I mean, talk about a topic that's big data. There's plenty of information out there, not a shortage by any means, but then just trying to figure out what are some major patterns that you can pull from this uh, yeah, to create your yeah. findings. Well, yeah. I mean, as, as our conversation over the last hour, I think probably um, betrays, um, it's a sprawling thing, right? When you start pulling at the thread of authenticity, you start seeing sh you start seeing it show up across all of these these different contexts. And and yeah, I mean, more or less, what I did, you know, just to sort of go behind the game for a second, I guess it's um, uh, is is I took a year or so to try to read everything I could read that's ever been written about. That's not true, of course, but you know, as much yeah. as relevant stuff as I could read about 
authenticity, what scholarship and what um, you know writing had said about it, and then try to take about a year to interview anybody who would talk to me. So I wound up getting, you know, I did, I tried to reach out to about three different, th- excuse me, three hundred different folks across these different domains of advertising, politics, social media, entertainment, um, and I wound up getting about eighty interviews, um, around sixty hours of interviews, eighty different um, folks who said yes to me. Um, and what was interesting was, again, I, I was asking the same questions of very different people, right? I was asking the same question to um, Donald Trump's press secretary, same question to Bruce Springsteen's um, uh, manager, to director of monetization at Facebook, to the guy who cast Jersey Shore. Like I'm asking that same question to very different people but who are giving me similar answers, right? So that's, you know, just in terms of, in terms of process, yeah, it's, it's a big stack of data, but you're, with any qualitative endeavor, you're just trying to, you're just, you know, what is qualitative research? It's just a process of um, pattern spotting, right? Yeah. You hope to spot as many patterns that, that you can that seem to be true across domains and case studies and contexts. And so, um, yeah, but the, the conversations were super fun. I mean, again, I, I'm picking the brain of these people. Like, you know, like I just have always been curious about curious about this stuff, right? I'm interviewing, you know, I'm interviewing the people behind the scenes for the social media platforms that I've spent countless hours on. I'm interviewing the people behind the scenes of political campaigns that I've watched with either fascination or horror or admiration. I'm interviewing the people behind the scenes of, um, you know, um, musicians that I've, I've adored. And so in that sense, it's a big pile of data, but it was a really fun set of conversations. Yeah. And something you can take with you and, and, and cross apply as your career continues to, uh, you know, take winds and turns, right? Totally. Excellent. Well, unfortunately we're out of time to, um, continue talking about this book, but however, there's one pressing question that I have and, and that is, what are you working on these days? What's your, what's your next big project? Yeah, it's a, it's it's the same question I have for myself to some degree. Um, right now, I mean, in the near term, I'm 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 trying to just find ways to um, try to get this, um, you know, the ideas from this book out there into the world. And I'm so grateful um, for the opportunity to talk to you about it on this podcast. Um, I don't have any like firm projects shaped up at this point, but I will say that there is one that's been itching at me. Um, and I don't know whether I'll get around to it in the near term or 10 years from now, but um, I came to academia from the world of journalism. I, I always thought that would be my career. And for an assortment of reasons uh, having to do with sustainability, both personal professional sustainability and also the sustainability of the news business, which is sort of cratered in the past 15 years, um, I still feel in my heart of hearts as, as I, that I'm a journalist. And so one project that I am, I've had an abiding interest in, but I haven't really even taken a, a step toward, I, I've done a few small things about, but what happens as and when journalism as we know it um, uh, um, 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 goes away? <laughs> um, I don't say that. I say that with with every hope that it won't, but um, the trend lines do not look good. And so I'm especially interested in what happens to reporters, people like myself who um, saw themselves in this work, felt it deep in their hearts, but the business cannot sustain them. Like, where do those folks go? Those are people who have been working on the front lines of democracy. They've been working on the front lines of shining the spotlight on injustice. And when they no longer have a job to do those things, where do they take those skills? And how does society suffer? How do cities suffer? How does 
you know, how does the world um, suffer because of that? So um, it's kind of a downer, <laughs> downer project to contemplate, but it's one that I may get around to sooner or later. We'll see what happens. In some ways, it's parallel to what you did, did here, though, because maybe some of them go to blogging and more amateur forms of journalism, and, but then it makes it leads to a whole other mess of like fake news and stuff, right? Not, not knowing, not knowing whether to trust what has been written. Indeed, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, I wish. Um, again, I, I love journalism deep in my heart. Um, in the way that I, I mean, I you know, I, I, I um, and I and I and I mourn. The economic conditions that have befallen it in the past two decades, and um, I don't think anybody's figured out a solution yet. I certainly won't claim to be able to have one now or later on, but um, we're losing we're losing something deeply important in America and in the world for our democracy, for our society, as we've seen journalism crumble. And um, you know, I think a project could be to try to figure out what happens after that. You definitely talk about this further. I mean, it kind of interests me in this idea of placemaking, and and I think journalists play a big role in in making the places that we frequent in our life or places we've never been before and want to have a better understanding of. And it's only through news and journalism that we can uh, uh, acquire that, at least Indeed. in a you know a more broad sense. Indeed. Uh, excellent. Well, thank you again, Michael, for being part of this show. Uh, again, this has been another episode of New Books in Sociology, a channel on the New Books Network. Have a great day.